Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. Thanks for joining us once again. It is quite a meaty case today and it's a case that was recommended to us by one of our listeners, Lissa. Um, So I'm going to hand over to Bethan and try not to interrupt her too much. Um, So our story begins in October 1975 with Leslie Molseed, who was otherwise known as Lau, popping to the shops for her mum. As this was the 70s, the request was not particularly unusual and no one would have really thought it was unsafe. She was 11. However, she had been born with a congenital cardiac condition. When she was three, she had open heart surgery and the procedure had affected her health and her development. So she remained quite frail with a reduced mental age. So actually, while she was 11, it's perhaps the thought that she was a little bit younger. But even even younger, I think when in the 70s, people didn't worry so much. Leslie lived in Delamere Road, part of the Turf Hill Estate, with her mother April, her stepfather Danny, her brother and her two sisters. She's been called the girl with the lopsided grin, and it's really cute because she was small and weak, but everyone called her Little Miss Chatterbox. On Sunday the 5th of October 1975, she was asked by her mum to pop to a local shop to buy some bread and air freshener, and the shop was nearby on Anstall Road. Obviously, I did my Google Maps searching and I had a little look at the area in a bit more detail. And the walk is between three or five minutes, depending on which end of the road she lived at and which end of the road the shop was. If it's further further apart, maybe five minutes. Um, so this was um, Greater Manchester. Leslie, wearing a blue raincoat and carrying a blue canvas shopping bag, left the house around lunchtime, carrying a pound for her purchases. And she was spotted walking along Stirrups Lane towards Ansel Road. And this is the road that links those two streets that I was talking about. The evidence from witnesses would show that she was just doing what she was asked. So she wasn't going off in a different route. This is quite a direct, sensible route to take. It also shows that when she was go- then goes missing, she wasn't running away or anything. She was walking the route that she should have taken. She didn't get home in a very reasonable time. So her mum sent her sister and then her brother to go and find her. And then her stepdad joined in the search. By 3pm, when there was still no uh, sign of Leslie, the Rochdale police were contacted and a major hunt began with the police searching the local streets and the M62 area adjacent to the town. But sadly, the sightings of Leslie on Stirrups Lane were the last of her alive and her body was discovered three days later on October the 8th. Her body was found by a motorist around 8am on Moorland near the A627 Oldham to Halifax Road. She had been dumped in grassland that was nine metres above a remote roadside lay-by and it was eight miles from her house. So it was just over the West Yorkshire border um, near Rippenden and she'd been stabbed 12 times in the upper shoulder and the back. She had no defensive wounds. So that really goes to show she couldn't she didn't fight back and she didn't have any chance to. Some of the stab wounds were very deep and one had penetrated her heart. A time of death could not be calculated. And then you said she had a congenital heart condition. So yeah, she was she, weakened anyway. Yeah, she to could have died her. from the first stab wound. Yeah. Hence no defensive wounds. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of that. That's a really good point. None of Leslie's clothing or possessions looked particularly disturbed, but her money was missing. And someone, and the police assumed her killer, quite rightfully, had ejaculated on her clothing and also on her underwear. The police began an investigation and forensic teams found fibres, 
traces of dry wallpaper paste and 379 other objects in the vicinity of Leslie's lifeless body. Around the same time, the police were approached by four teenage girls called Maxine Buckley, Catherine Burke, Debbie Brown and Pamela Hind. All four girls claimed that a man had indecently exposed himself to them on the day before the murder, and one of them also said he'd exposed himself to her a month before the murder on bonfire night, and he had been stalking her for some time. The name of this man was Stefan Kisko. So let's leave Leslie's story for a moment and look at Stefan in a little bit more detail. His father, Ivan, had emigrated from Soviet Ukraine and his mother, Charlotte, had emigrated from Yugoslavia after the Second World War to work in the cotton mills of Rochdale. Stefan was born on the 24th of March, 1952, which meant that at the time of the allegations, he was 23 years old. As a child, he was weak and sickly and was incredibly dependent on his parents. His last school report recorded that he was an oddity and a butt for bullies. But by the time he was 23, he was 6 foot 2 and 17 stone. But he was emotionally immature. So he had suffered from XYY syndrome, which is a condition in which the human male has extra Y chromosomes. Men who have this are normal, except for sometimes they have growth abnormalities or minor behavioural abnormalities. So at this point, age 23, he was working as a tech. Um, as a tax clerk and he'd never really been in trouble with the law his dad had died of a heart attack in 1970 and apparently it was in front of him in the street so it had affected him Um, and Stefan didn't really have a social life apart from his mum and his aunt he also had the mental and emotional age of a 12 year old and one of his behavioral abnormalities that was quite common for people who have this um chromosomal sort of disorder was that he would jot down the registration numbers of cars if he was annoyed by the driver so he had this notepad where he'd just write down when he'd seen cars and he'd put their number plates in west yorkshire police quickly decided that stefan kisko fitted their profile of the sort of person likely to have killed leslie molseed this was despite the fact that stefan had never been in trouble with the law the fact that he wrote down registration plates just annoyed the police so they were like well probably did it and there was a lack of understanding of any kind of mental health not, issues, yeah, yeah. out of the norm. Back Definitely, yeah. the police decided to pursue evidence that could incriminate Stefan, and they ignored other leads that might have taken them in other directions. They searched his car, and they found in there pornographic magazines, a pair of gloves, and a bag of sweets. They thought this was like a kit for abducting children, so they arrested him. So they might have thought, oh, he's got gloves so that he can you know, not get his fingerprints and stuff. But he also might have just had gloves in his car because he might get cold hands. And it's October. And they're saying that the the bag of sweets was like part of this kit to kidnap children. But also he's got the mental and sort of psychological age of a 12-year-old. But as we'll see, the police just focused on him. They didn't look at anybody else. And the police also noted that Stefan had noted down a car registration from the day of the murder And that car was later reportedly seen near to where Leslie had disappeared. So they said you wouldn't have seen it unless you were in the vicinity. They made the arrest on the 21st of December. So the implication to me is that from October to December, they basically just tried to find anything that links Stefan. I really don't see any evidence that they pursued any other links. Was this, you said that this was just over the border in Yorkshire? Mm -hmm. Was it South Yorkshire? West Yorkshire, I believe. Were they the one that like made a hash of the... Yorkshire Ripper. Um, yeah, one of the police officers. Yeah. Key to this case 
also um, was um, demoted due to the yeah. failings of the Yorkshire Ripper case. Yeah, because they were notoriously mm-hmm. rubbish. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the police officer in this case called Dick Holland, and I think he's a dick. That's appropriate. Yeah, very appropriate. So he was also demoted because of failings in the Yorkshire Ripper case. And then he was also um, one of the main factors in Judith Ward being wrongly convicted of the M62 IRA coach bombing murders. Prior to the Police and Criminal Evidence Act of 1984, suspects did not have the right to having a solicitor. Um, So the police didn't ask if Kisco wanted to have one. And his request was to have his mum there. His request to have her there while he was being questioned was refused. And during two days of questioning where he had no lawyer and the third day where he did have representation, the police were apparently brutal and hard and unforgiving in their questioning and their attitude towards him. They apparently seized upon every apparent inconsistency between his varying accounts of the relevant days as further evidence that he was guilty. The police also didn't caution Stefan until long after they decided that he was the prime, indeed the only suspect. And that's a major failing. Absolutely. And this really frustrates me because imagine if I tried to, uh, if I said to you right now, describe what you did on the 3rd of January. That was only a month and a bit ago. Like, I'd have to go back if through, like, my describe, calendars. Yeah, or, like, even describe yesterday. I'd have some of it there. And You'd I'd have really some inconsistencies. And everybody knows the guilty person's the one who says their story perfectly because they've yeah. rehearsed it in their head. So after this intensive questioning, when told if he confessed he would be allowed to go home for Christmas and see his mum, Stefan admitted to the murder. He believed that by doing so, he'd be allowed to go home and that the ensuing investigations would prove his innocence. He had real faith in the police. He said that he had never met Leslie. He was with his aunt at the time of the murder tending to his dad's grave and then the pair had visited a garden centre before going home. If the police were to check this, they would have found out that these facts were all true. But sadly, the police were adamant that they had their man. They didn't do any further investigations. Stefan was certain that the police would continue to look into the young girl's murder and prove his confession was false because the police are there to help him and protect him and they should be looking at this young girl's murder. When Stefan was asked later why he had confessed when he hadn't done anything, he said, I started to tell these lies and they seemed to please them and the pressure was off as far as I was concerned. I thought if I admitted what I did to the police, they would check out what I said, find it untrue and then they'd let me go. So, Stefan was charged with Leslie's murder on Christmas Eve, 1975. He was remanded in Armley Prison before his trial, and in the meantime, he did retract his confession, but it was just too late. His trial began at Leeds Crown Court, which was then Leeds Town Hall, on the 7th of July, 1976. In another tragic twist to this story, the defence made a number of significant mistakes when they were defending Stefan. So, first of all, they didn't seek an adjournment when the Crown delivered thousands of pages of additional unused material on the first morning of the trial. Stefan and his family never authorised them to use the defence of diminished responsibility. So this was based on some testosterone that he was receiving for his hypogonadism. I really don't know how to say it. See what you think, that word. Hypogonadism. I would say that. Hypogonadism. There we go. That's what we're going to say. Um, so that they basically said that the testosterone he was receiving for this may have made him behave unusually. His endocrinologist strongly disagreed with the theory. And if he had been called to testify, he would have said that the treatment would not cause someone to murder. 
Um, an endocrinologist, oh, these words are difficult, can diagnose and treat hormone problems and the complications that arise from them. So obviously with his XYY chromosomal defect, the doctor would have been a really key witness for the defence. They didn't call him up. The pathologist who examined Leslie Mulseed's clothes found traces of sperm, but the sample taken from Stefan Kisgo by the police contained no sperm. These sperm sample findings were actually suppressed by the police and never disclosed to the defence team or the jury. And Stefan had broken his ankle some months before, so in view of that and the fact that he was so overweight, he would have found it really difficult to go up that slope, which was like nine metres above the road, on that bad ankle, especially trying to carry the girl and stuff. So that could have been circumstantial evidence to perhaps show some doubt on his case. It was never told to the jury, so they never found out about that. Stefan's defence team led with a plea of manslaughter, which was completely undermining the fact that Stefan was saying that he was innocent. So straight away they're making him look like he's got his story mixed up or he's lying. Evidence from Maxine Buckley, Catherine Burke, Debbie Brown and Pamela Hind was given to the court and Pamela's in particular was read out and I think Maxine Buckley testified so that would have been really emotive, these teenage girls standing up and saying he did all these things. A 10 to 2 majority verdict was delivered by the jury on the 21st of July just over five and a half hours after they started deliberating. The judge sentenced Stefan to life imprisonment and praised the bravery of the girls who had made the exposure claims. He praised their bravery and honesty in giving evidence in court and their sharp observations. And the judge said that Maxine's sharp eyes set this train of inquiry into motion. He also praised the police officers involved in the case, including Dick Holland, for their great skill in bringing to justice the person responsible for this dreadful crime and their expertise in sifting through masses of material, adding, I would like all of the officers responsible for the result to be specially commended and these observations conveyed to the chief constable. Police staff members DS John Ackroyd and Detective Superintendent Holland were singled out for praise specifically. And Sheila Buckley, so Maxine's daughter, criticised the police for not arresting Stefan earlier and she told the Manchester Evening News that children are so much safer now this monster has been put away. She also um, demanded that Stefan hang for his crimes and even Stefan's solicitor thought his client was guilty. So whilst he thought it was a case of diminished responsibility, so he shouldn't have been convicted for murder, he still thought he did it. After a month in Armley Prison, Stefan was transferred to Wakefield Prison and he was placed on Rule 43 to protect him from other inmates. This is a law that would protect him due to his status as a convicted sex offender. But it really didn't help because everyone just detested him. Um, the majority of his fellow inmates would taunt him and hurl abuse at him and he actually received several death threats. He was physically attacked on a number of occasions as well. The first time was on the 21st of August the following year, just after being transferred to Wakefield Prison, when he was attacked by five prisoners who cut him on his mouth and injured his leg and his ankle. Um, in May 1977, he was hit over the head with a mop handle and he needed three stitches in his head. And in December 1978, he was punched in the face by another prisoner in an unprovoked attack whilst in the prison chapel. Stefan did attempt an appeal against his conviction, but this was dismissed on the 25th of May, 1978, and the judge presiding over it said, 
we can find no grounds whatsoever to condemn the jury's verdict of murder is in any way unsafe or unsatisfactory. This appeal is dismissed. Stefan refused to give up on protesting his innocence. In June 1988, a prisoner governor tried to persuade him to enrol on a sex offenders treatment program in which he would have to admit to having committed the murder and they're saying that he had to admit to the rape. Now, I couldn't find anything that said she'd been raped. There was semen on her clothing, but the initial reports all said that she hadn't been disturbed and that there was no sort of evidence of that. So I'm mm. not really certain. But at this point, they were saying you need to confess to the rape and murder of her. Having done that, he would then be able to discuss what motivated him to do it and basically get over it. But he refused to take part and repeatedly refused to address this offending behaviour because he knew that he'd done nothing wrong. His mum, Charlotte, also never gave up fighting for her son's innocence either. So while he floundered in prison, being attacked and abused, continuously protesting his innocence, she spent all her time approaching politicians and people from within the legal system. Despite being ignored and stonewalled on numerous occasions, she continued to fight. She petitioned the Prime Minister at the time, James Callaghan, and then when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, she continued to attempt to speak to her about her son's miscarriage of justice. She really would not give up. In 1984, Charlotte contacted Justice, the UK human rights organisation, which at the time investigated many miscarriages of justice. And finally, three years later, Solicitor Campbell Malone agreed to take a look at the case. He agreed even though it seemed pointless and he really thought that Stefan would be in prison for the rest of his life. He didn't think he'd ever be released. But after two years of work, during which he spent time with Philip Clegg, they had a petition to, uh, to present to the Home Office. Philip Clegg had been a junior at the 1976 trial, but had expressed his own doubts about the confession and the conviction at the time, and together over the next two years, they prepared this petition. It was ready to be sent on the 26th of October, 1989. In February 1990, the Home Office privately disclosed that Stefan Kisko's first ever parole hearing would be taking place in December 1992, by which time he would have served 17 years in custody. However, he would only be released if he admitted to having murdered Molseed and if he could convince the parole board that he would not be a danger to children or the public. The petition to the Home Office actually took 16 months after being presented to get back to West Yorkshire Police, but as soon as it did get back to them, Detective Superintendent Trevor Wilkinson, who was in charge of the review, quickly established that there were glaring errors in the prosecution's case. And then the case against Stefan just began to fall apart. Witnesses were located through private investigators and they actually gave Stefan strong alibis saying they'd seen Stefan in a shop around the time of the murder. He was seen with his aunt at his dad's grave, so as he had said. These witnesses said they could not understand why they had not been called to give evidence at the trial and some of the prosecution's key witnesses retracted their original statements saying they had lied for a laugh and because at the time it was funny. And that's those four girls. And like, this is just, to me, that is really horrific because it's one thing to say it, but then surely at some point you're going to go, do you know what, maybe I made a mistake and get around it somehow. And they just let him go off for a life imprisonment with not a care in the world. So Burke said that she wished that she had not said anything, but she refused to apologise, saying she didn't think it would go as far as it did, you know. Um, Buckley said it was not Kisco who had exposed himself to her and that he had not been stalking them, but she also refused to apologise. 
Brown refused to make a statement, and Hind was the most remorseful of the four, saying that what they did was foolish, but we were young, and that had she appeared in court, she would have told the truth, unlike her friends who had all committed perjury. She herself did not think that Kisco would be convicted. So other evidence, as well as these witnesses and the fact that their main star witnesses were lying, was around the semen found. So what we kind of talked about before was that the semen contained heads of sperm that they sort of had and it didn't match up to Stefan. They then investigated further and because of his chromosomal um, abnormalities that he had, he was infertile so he wouldn't have been able to produce semen that had sperm in it. Yeah. And this is just a TMI moment but I couldn't resist. In 1975, his testes had measured four to five millimetres whereas an average adult male testicular size was 15 to 22 millimetres. So again, he's he's showing that he doesn't have that ability. Um, this was never presented to the defence or to the jury. So, 10 months before his parole hearing, on the 17th of February 1992, the judicial investigation into Kisco's conviction began, and it was heard by three judges. Present at the hearing were Franz Muller, QC, and William Boyce for the Crown, who were there to argue that Stefan Kisco was guilty of murder and therefore should remain in custody. The defence were Stephen Sedley, QC, and Jim Gregory. And when Muller and Boyce heard all the new evidence, they just didn't even put up a counter-argument. They literally accepted its validity, and the three appeal judges ruled that it was unsafe and unsatisfactory. After hearing the new evidence, um, so one of the judges was Lord Chief Justice Lane. He said, It has been shown that this man cannot produce sperm. This man cannot have been the person responsible for ejaculating over the girl's knickers and skirt, and consequently could not have been the murderer. Stefan Kisko was cleared, his immediate release from custody was ordered, and the 1976 trial judge who had praised the police and the 13-year-old girls at the original trial apologised for what had happened to Kisko. So Anthony Beaumont Dark, which I thought was a very good name, very strong name, um, he was a Conservative MP at the time and he said this must be the worst miscarriage of justice of all time. And like many others, he demanded a full, independent and wide-ranging inquiry into the conviction. The Molseed family, who right up until his um, conviction was overturned, were convinced of his guilt, then publicly apologised for saying things about him and publicly said, we believed that you killed our daughter, so that's why, for example, they demanded he'd been hanged. Stefan was cleared and released from prison in February 1992. Now aged 40 and having developed schizophrenia, he remained in hospital for the next nine months. And a really savage twist to Stefan's tale, West Yorkshire Police and Ronald Outeridge, the original forensic scientist, despite the overwhelming and obvious evidence that Kisco was innocent, refused to apologise for the wrongful conviction. Um, Outeridge even became angry when questioned about his role in the trial. And Stefan also didn't receive an apology from David Waddington. Um, Sheila Buckley, her daughter Maxine Buckley, Pamela Hind, Debbie Brown or Catherine Burke, who, you know, collectively their evidence helped to convict Stefan. He didn't get an apology from the prosecution barrister Peter Taylor. And Peter Taylor also refused to express one single word of regret for what had happened. And all of them refused to comment when Kisco was released. West Yorkshire police even tried to justify the position they'd taken in 1975, whilst at the same time admitting they were in the wrong. 
And now it was time to actually try and investigate Leslie's murder properly, even though it had been over 16 years since she died. Evidence wasn't as readily available. In 1985, as per a routine procedure, the clothing that she was wearing when she was murdered was destroyed. This was just what happened and it wasn't, you know, someone's been convicted, it wasn't really an issue. But obviously now they needed to reinvestigate. The police then investigated her dad, but he was arrested and then questioned, but released without charge. That was in 1991. And Raymond Hewlett, a convicted paedophile, was questioned about Leslie's murder and a file was sent to the director of public prosecutions, but they decided there was not enough evidence to charge him either. So I did mention before that Stefan had developed schizophrenia and I'm sorry to jump back and forwards, but I am going to go back to when he spent some time in prison because to understand just how horrific this case is, we need to know a little bit more about what happened to him when he was inside. Whenever he was attacked by other inmates, the guards had no sympathy for him and they just treat him really badly too. If he retaliated, he was punished equally to the person who'd attacked him. Everyone decided he was guilty. He'd been convicted, so they treated him like scum and saw him as the worst of the worst, a child murderer and a sex offender. The already fragile mind of this mentally ill man became more and more broken. The mental illness, which was ultimately diagnosed as schizophrenia, began in around 1979 when he began to suffer from delusions. One of his delusions was that he was the victim of a plot to incarcerate an innocent tax office employee so that the effects of imprisonment could be tested on him. Over the next decade, any of Kisco's claims of innocence were then labelled as symptoms of his schizophrenia or put down to him being in a state of denial. In January 1980, he said that coded messages on BBC Radio 2's Jimmy Young show were being sent to him. In 1982, he claimed that his parents had a tape recorder hidden in their kitchen and made him sing after turning it on, later selling the songs to Barry Manilow to make money off of his talents. Um, In June 1984, it was recommended by a forensic psychiatrist that he should be moved to Broadmoor, Rampton. In July 1990, he said he was striking out a ghost who was trying to sexually abuse him. And finally, on the 15th of March 1991, he was transferred to Ashworth Hospital. This was still after six months of delay after being told that he should go there. So when Stefan was released from prison in February 1992, he did spend nine months in hospital as almost like a stopgap to prepare him. He would spend sort of like weekends and sometimes during the week going back to his mum's house just to get him through that sort of stages. Speaking to the BBC after his release, he said that he was enjoying sleeping in in the mornings and catching up with old friends. He and his mother had received hundreds of letters and cards from well-wishers. And Stefan said he wanted to make up for all those years by going to Australia to enjoy himself and maybe America as well and have a good time. And finally, in late April 1992, he was allowed to return to her home for good. Even though he had the grand ideas of travelling, his time in prison had affected him so greatly. It must be really difficult for anyone to return to society after 16 years in prison, but especially for someone whose mental health is suffering so much. Not only did he become a recluse with little interest in anything or anyone, but he also began to suffer with angina and other physical health problems. And people were trying to be nice and it made it worse, so he'd go out in his car and he'd go out for little journeys and stuff, but people would be constantly apologising for what happened or giving him words of encouragement or support and that frightened him even more, so actually he's just stopped going out. On December 23rd of that year that he got release, 
Stefan died of a massive heart attack at home at just 41 years old. His mother found him collapsed and he died where he lay. Leslie Molsey's sister actually went to his funeral two weeks later um, and after the release from prison, Kisco had been told that he was going to receive £50,000 in compensation for the years that he spent in prison. He had received an interim payment but he died before being awarded his full payout. And to add another tragic twist to the story, I know, I'm sorry, Mark, his mum, Charlotte, who had campaigned tirelessly for her son's release, died just four months later in May 1994. Before her death, Charlotte had said, I am not a bitter woman. However, there are certain people I cannot forgive for the way they treated my son. The mother and son are buried together in Rochdale Cemetery. Because no other close relatives existed, the payout that Stefan was entitled to had no one to go to. On the gravestone that marks the burial place of Charlotte and Stefan, an inscription is carved which reads, A loving wife and a very devoted mother, which is such an understatement. She campaigned tirelessly and ultimately successfully for 16 years to prove the innocence of her son. And then she only got to keep him at home then for months. So in 1999, a new forensic examination of the evidence that had been retained from the crime scene began and the findings were released in 2000. These revealed the examiners were able to create a DNA profile of the man who had ejaculated onto the clothing. Now, I know I said earlier that Leslie's clothes had been destroyed as per protocol, but pieces of sticky tape used to lift traces of semen found on the underwear had been kept. It was this that the forensic examiners used to create the DNA profile which ruled out many suspects. Most importantly to my telling of this case, Stefan Kisko was ruled out from this. And Raymond Hewlett. Um, And actually, a few times people had really kind of campaigned to get him prosecuted and looked at in a lot more detail, but this removed him from the case. The police officially relaunched the murder investigation into Leslie's death on May the 8th, 2001. And in February 2003, a fresh appeal to catch the killer was made on... Crime Watch. Crime Watch UK. By April, the police were able to announce that they had a list of 90 new suspects as a result of the television appeal. But even though the police were continuing to investigate, the break was when someone was arrested for an un- unrelated crime, and that was when Ronald Castry was arrested. Just a bit of a spoiler alert. This isn't going to be, I get to the end of this story and then I'm like, and it wasn't him either. And then they found, this is, this is definitely him. So we do need to now jump back in time a little bit to July 1976, half a year after Leslie was murdered. In Rochdale, a nine-year-old girl was abducted by a taxi driver named Ronald Castry. He took her back to a derelict house where he sexually assaulted her. On the 12th of July, just days later, he pleaded guilty at Rochdale Magistrates Court to the charges of indecent assault and incitement to commit an act of gross indecency. It was then, not even two weeks later, on the 21st of July, that Stefan was convicted of Leslie's murder. Um, So this routine swab, which was taken from Ronald Castry in 2005 on just a random day when he was being investigated, was found to be a complete match with the profile that was obtained from the sperm heads found in Leslie's clothing. In 2006, he was charged with Leslie's murder. The police began to investigate his background and the full picture of Leslie's killer emerged. Ronald Castry was born on the 18th of October 1953 in Littleborough near Rochdale. 
Originally from the Turfill estate of Rochdale, Castry lived in Shaw and Crompton and was a taxi driver for many years. He appeared to all the world as a caring father, a hard-working self-made man, but behind this facade he was a paedophile and serial sex attacker who eventually progressed to child murder. Whilst he tried to keep up appearances, he was unpopular with his neighbours, who said he was a very nasty man with a temper, and his former wife has reportedly said he was foul with his mouth and foul with his fists. He was apparently incredibly physically abusive towards his wife and reports have said he regularly beat her up and on occasion he forced her to take part in humiliating acts of bondage. One of his sick fantasies was to make her dress up like a schoolgirl so he could then molest her. Castry was still in his teens when he married for the first time and he and his wife Beverly made a family home for themselves just a few streets from Leslie's family home. The marriage was stormy with affairs on both sides and Castry has admitted he was a serial adulterer. He said casual sex with the women he picked up in his taxi was normal behaviour in the trade at that time. It wasn't obviously just on his side. The, I did say, you know, both of them had affairs. Yeah. But I can kind of understand her then having affairs and seeking solace in other people if he's attacking her and beating her and he's off doing everyone who gets in his taxi. <laughs> Allowed to us to say it like so eloquently put. Thank you. When aged 21, Castry found out that he was going to be a father for the first time. He knew that the baby wasn't his, but he actually continued to stay with her with his wife and decided to bring the baby up as his own. Despite continuing affairs, one night stands, and claims of more domestic abuse, the couple stayed together, having two more sons. They split up in 1996 and divorced a year later, but they were together for a long time and had three children. In 1975, two weeks before Leslie was killed, Beverly gave birth to this first son and ended up in hospital after developing deep vein thrombosis. This left Castry alone at home while she was in hospital for the further week, and some of the experts have theorised that the birth of this illegitimate child might have been a bit of a trigger for him because he was willing to stay with her but also he would have had some of those emotions of this isn't my child and all of that kind of going on. They also theorise as well that because he was abusing her, he then needed to go and do something because he didn't have her at home. As the police searched for the young girl's killer, Beverly watched, as I'm sure everyone in the area did, the news coverage of the inquiry. She recalls expressing her hope that the man who did this would be caught soon, but her husband gave her no clue that he was the man responsible. When Stefan Kisko was arrested, Castry must have felt like he was free to strike again. And so that was when he then snatched that girl and took her in his taxi to the derelict house. The girl also, like Leslie, had learning difficulties and he seems to have had a bit of a theme of um, taking girls that perhaps couldn't fight back as well. And with Leslie, he would have been easily able to overpower her. Luckily for this second girl that he snatched, she managed to um, kick him and run away when he tried to sort of make her take part in this sexual act. And the police then caught up to Castry, and when he came to trial, he pleaded guilty, but claimed to have no memory of what he did, and put it down to exhaustion of doing two jobs. He claimed that the girl had come to no harm. So, whilst he was convicted of this, there was not really any reason to link it to Leslie's murder. They were quite different cases. The West Yorkshire detectives did remain convinced that he must have offended before, but he didn't really put another foot wrong until 2005. I think that him being arrested for the second crime where the girl got away must have 
put the fear into him that he then didn't want to get away with anything that's again because true. yeah that's interesting yeah so he would have felt when um stefan was convicted and sent down he would have almost felt invincible mm-hmm. around that time yeah so he's gone on to to do that sort of second attack but like you say it's gone so wrong he's panicked and i that think has so. been enough for him to be like i got away with it once and didn't get away with it second yeah. time i'm not doing it again i think so and i perhaps his time in prison for the second attack did rehabilitate him and actually maybe it did change him so this thing in 2005 um a lot of the details have been kept quite quiet, but it's believed that he was on suspicion of raping a local woman. So mm. if that is the case, had he really changed his tune? I just don't know. And it's really impossible to know because this isn't public knowledge. It's just rumour and conjecture. Mm. Apparently, this allegation didn't come to court because the victim was not mentally fit to testify. So again, it's kind of tying into the fact that these girls were vulnerable mentally incapable young women as well like i just don't know it could it really does seem to apparently when he gave the swab to the detectives i think it kind of just comes across that he knew his time was up and when the police turned up to arrest him for the murder of leslie he told the officers i've been expecting this for years He made his first court appearance on the 7th of November 2006 when he was remanded in custody and then at a court hearing on the 19th of April 2007, he pleaded not guilty. On the 23rd of April 2007, he was refused bail and his trial began at Bradford Crown Court on the 22nd of October 2007. So they've really quickly got together this evidence to take him to trial. I found it really interesting that he's, I've been expecting this for years, and then he's saying not guilty. He was found guilty on the 12th of November 2007 and jailed for life with a recommendation to serve a minimum of 30 years. So he will be in prison until he is at least 83 years old. So in court, Castry did try to have the sexual assault charge that he'd been convicted of um, kept from the jury. And he also made a series of bizarre claims when he tried to kind of find an alternative explanation for the evidence. He said at first that the police who had investigated an incident in 1979 that was relating to a theft had threatened to fit him up for Leslie's murder, despite the fact that Stefan Kisco was already in jail by this point and why would they have cared? Um, And then, now this is really awful and I think it's horrific that he'd say this, he actually said that he'd had sexual contact with Leslie's mum and sexual contact with Leslie's older sister and that was how her clothes had got contaminated. But the jury just rejected all of his stories and after 32 years, justice was done for Leslie. Leslie's mother, April, uttered a cry of yes from the public gallery as the jury found Castry guilty by a majority of 10 to 2. Castry showed no emotion as the foreman returned the verdict in the packed courtroom. And in sentencing, Mr Justice Openshaw told Castry, you kept quiet whilst an entirely innocent man was arrested, tried, convicted and sentenced for this murder. After the trial, Leslie's mother, flanked by her two surviving daughters, said, we are relieved that after so long our quest for justice for Leslie is now over. And Leslie's father said that he believed that her killer deserved the death penalty, saying, someone else paid the penalty for what he did. I'd like to see him strung up, to be honest. That would be the ultimate justice. So there you are. That is the case of not just one victim, little Leslie, but also a second, Stefan. What did you think of the case? I don't know. I just think it's 
it, yeah, like you say, it's sort of twofold, isn't it? There's, mm. there's two victims there. Um, I think it's always really interesting when somebody else gets convicted falsely and sent down and the real murderer or the real criminal is out there thinking, I've completely got away with yeah. this. And it always makes me think of historic cases that we've covered. Mm-hmm. For me, it, it takes me back to Jill Dando's case where Barry yeah. George was falsely convicted. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the police said, initially at least, that they were still satisfied that he'd done it. Yeah. That conviction was quashed. So they said they weren't going to look into it. But I think they have changed their mind a little bit and have kind of looked into it a bit. But yeah, I just think it's really interesting. Mm. You know, these people are, are literally getting away with it. And getting away with it in the best possible way because they're not getting away with it and nobody else is caught. Someone's mm-hmm. caught, so everyone's thinking we've found whoever's done it. Yeah. And like you sort of said earlier as well, it's that thing of, well, if I just admit to this, um, I might get out if I've got my par- parole hearing. But actually, he stuck, sort of stuck by his convictions. He had his mum, bless her, like, she's amazing. She literally campaigned and wrote to people constantly and I wasn't so surprised that she'd actually died straight after he no. died because he was her life by that point and all of her energy went into him. Don't forget you can reach out to us in all of the usual ways. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search Seeing Red Podcast. And if you wanted to support the show financially, then you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Seeing Red Podcast. So until next week, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.